The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. We have been looking now for a number of weeks at how we, as followers of the Lord Jesus, can live a life that would cause a lost world to take notice. To live in, in such a manner that is so countercultural that, a, uh, that a, a world that's driven by sinful desires and sinful passions would look at our lives, the testimony of our lives, the way that we live our lives, and even as they slander us, they might, through us, be brought to the grace of God. This entire section that we've been in now um, really began in uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Apostle Peter writes this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This verse sets up how Peter then begins to address these things. And he begins to, to teach us exactly what he means when he says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And the Gentiles being those who are not believers in the Lord Jesus. Keep your conduct honorable. Live in such a way that even as they slander you, even as you suffer, they will see you. And hopefully, when God comes to... to bring salvation, they would respond in, in faith. This continues in, in this text this morning. And this morning, Peter shows us um, that we should be six things from this text. And I think they're, they're pretty easily seen. They're, they're laid out in order. Um, and they're all... A call from Peter that we should be, we should live in, in, in these certain ways. The first five of these six deal with how we interact one with another as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, the first five that we'll talk about this morning that, that Peter lays out for us, ways that we can live that would cause a lost world to take notice, have to deal with, with how we interact one with another, believer to believer. And then the last of the six deals with how we as believers would interact with a lost world that would cause them to, to take notice. Peter begins in verse 8 with this, this word, finally. And it's, it's, he's just like a good Baptist preacher, right? He says, finally, and then he's still got half the letter left to write. But this, this finally is sort of Peter beginning to bring to a close this thought that, that he's, he's had since, really, chapter 2, verse 12. Um, first, remember, there is no chapter break. There is no verse breaks. This is just a letter written to Paul. They were later added for us uh, for, for readability. This also is, is to clue us in and to show us that what Peter is about to say is tied directly with what Peter has said before. Right, So this finally draws us into, brings us back to everything that, that Peter 
has, has already said. And this is important. This is an important way to, to study the Scriptures. It's an important way to understand the Scriptures, that the Scriptures give clarity and understanding to the Scriptures, right? You don't come to the Scriptures and bring with, it, with you clarity and understanding. You come to the Scriptures, and from the Scriptures, you get clarity and understanding. And these are, these are words that are important in that process, um, that clue us in what, what Peter's doing here and that the thought is, is continuing. And as we study Scripture, we say it all the time here. If, if you've been around our church for any length of time, you probably know it, right? When you study God's Word, context is king. It, the context matters more than anything else. And so when we see this word finally, we understand the, the context that draws us into what we've, we've been Studying. This is just keeping with the previous thought. But Peter takes um, sort of an extra step here to, to really draw us in to make sense of this, right? Because he says, finally, all of you. All of you. And see, I, I think there is this, this added language, this, this change. We, we see it represented here in a, in a paragraph break in, in your Bibles. There's this change where Peter is saying, listen, I have been addressing you, and in my addressing to you, I have been addressing specific types and specific categories of people, right? So that's where we've been um, for the last month or so, where, where Peter has said, I'm going to first address those who are under, under you know, civil jurisdiction. So... In our day, we're all under civil jurisdiction. Whether you think you're a sovereign citizen or not, you are under a civil jurisdiction. In, in Peter's day, that may not have been the, the case, right? Because there were, there were areas, there were parts of the land that, that had not yet been, been conquered and would have been outside the reach of, of Rome or outside the reach of a, of a civil magistrate. And so when Peter writes, he's saying, listen, I'm writing to those of you who are under a civil jurisdiction, that you are, you are citizens of the state. So that's, that's limiting in who Peter's talking to. And then he gave instructions to who next? He gave instructions to slaves, uh, household servants, household slaves, with how they are to submit to their masters, right? So not everyone in that congregation would have been a slave. His address was to the, the slaves in the congregation. We can, even if it doesn't necessarily apply directly to us, like we talked about when we looked at those verses, we can find principles to take from that and apply to our situations, um, but this was a specific group that, that Peter was writing to. And then Peter addressed another specific group. And who was that? Do you know? That was, this was last week. Wives. I'm going to write to you wives on how you should submit to your husbands. And then husbands, how you should honor and respect your wives. So in, as Peter's been unfolding for us and for these, these churches, how they're to live a life that would cause a, a lost world to pay attention, he's, he's been addressing specific groups of people. And so now he writes to say, finally, all of you. So if you've been sitting and you've been listening to this letter read in the first century, and you would have heard citizens, citizens of, this, the, of the state, and you could have said, well, I don't live under 
you know, Roman jurisdiction. I'm out. That ain't me. Or you would have heard slave. Well, I'm not a slave. That's not me. Or you would have heard wife. I'm not a wife. Or husband. I'm not a husband. And, and you might would have, would have checked out. And so here Peter's saying, listen, I am addressing every single one of you. There's not one of us who is outside this command of Scripture. There's not one of us that this doesn't apply to. Every single one of us, finally, all of you are called to live this kind of way. And Peter gives these characteristics that we are called uh, to have. Peter says it this way, right? Finally, all of you have. Finally, all of you possess. And, and I got to thinking about this and this idea of possession and what Peter means when he says, finally, all of you have. This isn't just possess these things as you have them, but you may not use them, or you have them, but you may not employ them, right? I mean, there are things that we have that we never use. And these are things that we have that are ours already. These things are already yours. We're, gonna, we're, we're, we're heading there um, in our text. That's where we're going to, that's where we're ending. These things are already yours. And so now what Peter means is every single one of us, you employ these things. You use these things. You live this kind of, of way. And Peter gives five characteristics. And the difficulty here that most uh, you know, theologians and a lot of, of exegesis r- runs into as we study this particular text is that these are not in verb form. And because of that, they're, they can prove to be difficult if you really want to do a, a word study. Um, out of the first five... Only one of these is used one other time in all of the scriptures in the exact form that it's used. It's used here. And I think what Peter is, is saying to us is that these are things that we're not only to do, right? That's the verb. But these are things that we are to be. Like this is our nature. This is our characteristics. This is what is 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 embedded deep inside of us that naturally overflows out of us these these six things. So here they are. You can can see them with me starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Those are the five. First five all deal with how we interact with one another. And do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. That's the sixth. For to this you were called, you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Every single one of us are called to be these things, to have these things, to employ these things, to live 
this kind of way. And what, what are they? So we're going to look at them individually. And the first is to live with a like-mindedness. To live with a like-mindedness. Peter says it this way. Have unity of mind. Have unity of mind. Live with a like-mindedness, a same-mindedness. Live in harmony. We are called as the people of God to be marked by a like-mindedness, to have a unity of thought. This is why I believe that these are directed to the church and how they live with one another. Because we cannot, we are unable to have a like-mindedness with the world. Right? We are in the world, we're not of the world. We are born again, we are different. We are not called to have a like-mindedness with the world. What we are called to, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, is a unity of thought, a unity of mind, a same-mindedness, a like-mindedness within the gathered congregations of local churches. We are called to live and to dwell together in unity and in harmony. To have a unity of thought. Look at a number of, of places where the Apostle Paul speaks of this. First is Romans chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. For by grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. Right? So Peter, Paul's laying out here a, a picture, a metaphor, an analogy of, of the church of God. That we are um, a body. And just as our, our physical bodies have many different members, many different parts... So does the, the earthly body of believers have many different parts. Yet within our body there is unity. And so we are called to live in, in unity. Same uh, chapter, same context, just down to verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the low Never be wise in your own sight. Peter call, or Paul calls us as the body of Christ, as a local congregation, being different, yet living together in harmony. A harmony that comes out of an understanding of humility. Peter goes there. We'll be there in, in just a second. Romans 15 verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement... Grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, 
any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. As Jesus himself was headed towards the day of his crucifixion, he comes before his heavenly father in prayers. And of of all the things that he could have prayed for us, his church, he prays, God, would they be one just as you and I are one so that the world would know that you sent me. It is the unity of the local church. It is a like-mindedness. It is a same-mindedness that causes a lost world to look at us and go, there is something different about that group of people. There is a harmony there. There is a peace there. There is a comfort there that doesn't exist anywhere else like it exists here. This is who we are are called to be as the people of God. A people who live in harmony, in unity, in like-mindedness. See, this isn't a unity that's born out of an unwillingness. This isn't a unity born out of, I'll just shut up and go along. This is a unity that is born out of the same pattern of thinking. Do do you see that? Like if we are like-minded, if we are thinking the same way, then the natural result of that is unity. The world is looking for this. And there are lots of places where this is counterfeited. Lots of places. There's one in particular that I believe is a cult. And that's all these CrossFit people. (laughs) I don't really think it's a cult. I'm just kidding. But what you see, and I think part of the reason why CrossFit took over the way that it did is because what they build is not just exercise. It's not just a healthy lifestyle. It's community. It's unity. It's gathering together with a like-mindedness. We're all set after one goal, right? And that's to see how many times we can flip this big tire over. (laughs) And I think that grew the way that it grew because the world is looking for that. The world is looking for... Unity. The world is looking for community. And when it finds it, it rejoices in it, even if it isn't something to rejoice in. I think this is one of the best ways that those who advocate same-sex relationships can make inroads into our culture. Because if that's a struggle, what you find then in those, uh, with those, those people is community. And like-mindedness. And unfortunately, what the world has seen from us, the church, is the opposite of that. Right? What the world oftentimes sees from us is church splits and disunities 
This is always some war being fought, right? I mean, it was the worship wars. We all remember the worship Well, We probably don't. Y'all are young. I'm older than you, but not old. Um, but we remember the worship wars, wars where the, the, the church was, was fighting a battle amongst itself over the style of worship. Lately, there's been battles over theological issues like the doctrine of election. And what you see the enemy doing is taking things that ought to bring unity and using them to bring division. And it's hurting our witness. It's hurting our testimony to the lost world because they look at us and they say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Oh, you're a Baptist? Don't Baptists fight about everything? I don't want to have anything to do with that. When what should mark us is a like-mindedness that's born out of a humility, not thinking highly of ourselves, and being saturated and governed by the Word of God. When those things happen, unity happens. And when unity happens, the world takes notice. This is why Peter says... Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Unity of mind. We as a church have been blessed over the last few years with a gracious amount of unity. And I praise God for it. I praise God for it. I am well aware of how blessed I am to pastor a church like this. We must fight to keep it. We must fight to keep it. We must remain like-minded. Even as we grow, we remain like-minded. Because it's easy to be like-minded and feel like, man, things are really good and we all love each other and, and it's just incredible. And somebody new comes in and it's like, oh my gosh, are they going to mess up the unity? We can't live that way. We welcome brothers and sisters in Christ and we work together towards a like-minded unity so that the world would see us and would take notice. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. That's the first one. The second one is be sympathetic. Have like-mindedness and be sympathetic. So sympathy is simply put to share the same feelings of someone else. That's what it means to have sympathy. You share in their feelings. Whatever feelings they have, we share in those. Now, the way that we commonly use and understand and think of sympathy is in times of, of grief or loss, right? So if someone is grieving, someone has suffered a loss of some sort, family member, loved one, job, you, you name it, um, and there is grief, then, then we express our sympathy to them, right? We, we join with them in their feelings of loss and grief. That's the way that we uh, most clearly understand sympathy. And that certainly is sympathy. And we are called to that. We are called to that. But to have sympathy is not just to share in the griefs of others, but it is to share in the joys of others and everything in between. Sympathy, to be sympathetic, is I am, I am hurting when you hurt, 
But I am also rejoicing when you rejoice. When things go poor for you, when things go bad for you, when you are suffering, then I am right there with you in those dark days. But when things go good for you, even better than they're going for me, I'm right there with you celebrating. That is sympathy. Now, the, the joining with people in the grief, that's the, I don't want to say easy because it is difficult and it is hard and I understand it is, it can be awkward, um, but, but that's, the, um, that's the, the easy one for a lot of us. But joining in the joys, that can be the hard stuff, right? Because now things are happening to them that you wished had happened to you. Things are going better for them than they're, than they're going for you. And so sometimes it can be hard to join in the joys of another person. Because we wish that that was happening to me. You see, this is real, authentic care for one another in every part of their lives. When we share in the griefs of others, it is evidence of our selflessness, right? That we're not selfish, that we're willing to, to come in and to share in your grief. I will walk with you, I will Hold your hand. I will hug you. I will pray for you. I will be there for you when you need me. I am there. That is, I'm, I'm not selfish, right? I'm selfless. But to share in the joys of others is to evidence that there is no jealousy in us. Because if jealousy lives inside of us, when things start going well, when they get the job that we wish we had, or they get the house that we wish that we had, or they have the children that we wish that we had... And we can't celebrate in their, in their joys, then that is uh, the reality is, is that there is jealousy in us, and that jealousy is not honoring to God. God's called us to be sympathetic, to live in sympathy with one another, both the griefs and the joys and everything in between. We cannot live this way unless we are connected to one another in like mindedness. We cannot live this way. How can we share in the griefs of one another if we don't know what's going on in their lives? How can we share in the joys of one another if we don't know what's going on in their lives? We have to be connected in like-mindedness. Why would we want to be connected if there was no unity? Unless there exists in us an openness and an honesty and we cultivate a place of safety to express and work through our emotions together, we can never live in real sympathy with one another. But this should be a place, this has to be a place where openness and honesty is cultivated. And I say cultivated on purpose because this doesn't come natural. This takes work. And that's exactly why when the lost world sees it in us, they see something different in us than they see of the rest of the world. Because this is not natural. It is supernatural. It is the work of the grace of God when there dwells among the people of God an openness and an honesty that results in a sympathetic lifestyle one towards another. I am with you in the grief and I am with you in the joy and I'm with you in everything in between. And there should be present among us a growing openness. Primarily for us as a local church, this is 
best expressed and most easily expressed and most easily seen in our community groups. This is why community groups exist. Because it is hard in a setting like this to cultivate uh, an openness and an honesty and a, and a safe environment to, to share in one another's griefs and joys. But in smaller settings like community groups where these things can be shared, then we can share in one another. This is why we, we push. Every time we start community groups, we push and we call you to join. But we cannot be a church where we say, we do community groups, so we've done the sympathy thing. It starts there, and that's a place for it to be cultivated. But it has to be more than this. Here's what that means. That means as the people of God, we must be engaged with one another. More than just Sundays. Seeing each other on an hour and a half here and, and, and you know, two hours, unless you're in our community group sometimes, is not enough. That is not enough to be sympathetic one to another, to join in griefs and sorrows. We have to be engaged with people. Here's what that means. That means that we have to take risks. This is a risky and a scary thing. It is risky and it is scary to come to somebody and to open up about grief and joy and everything in between. It is a risky thing to come to someone and open about emotions. That's a hard thing. That's a risky thing. But that's the exact thing that we've been called to as the people of God. And that'll never happen among us unless there is among us a growing openness and a growing safety. I hit my iPad at some point, went back up to the top of my nose. We have to be engaged. We have to take risks. We have to ask for opportunities to connect outside of a Sunday morning. That's a risky thing, right? Unless you're Lindsay. That's a risky thing. Because Lindsay will meet you and say, you want to go to lunch? And I love it. It's a risky thing to ask, hey, would you like to get together this week? And it's a risky thing to work to cultivate this kind of openness. But it's what we are called to. We're called to like-mindedness. We're called to be sympathetic. And thirdly, we're called to brotherly loving. To brotherly loving. This is love as a brother. This is familial love. This is love that lasts. That's the way I understand brotherly loving. Is a love that, that lasts. I was gifted by God with a brother. And I know in him there is someone who will love me to the end. And I as his brother will love him to the end. 
Even when we disagree, even though we see the world very differently, there exists between us a love that lasts, a familial kind of love. This is what we're called to as the people of God because we are family. We are. We are family. This is why we say we want to be a Christ-centered family on mission. We're family. Hebrews 2, 10 and 11 says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their, their salvation perfect through suffering. This is, it was fitting for God to make the founder of our salvation, Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior through his suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Here's what the writers of Hebrews is saying. That we are, by the grace of God, because of salvation offered to us through Jesus Christ, we are now brothers. Not just one to another, but brothers of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Not just brothers, co-heirs, the scriptures say. That we have been together, adopted into one family, the family of God. And now we are called to love each other with a brotherly kind of love. A familial kind of affection. One that lasts. One that is not predicated on circumstances. One that is not predicated on conduct. But one that exists regardless of conduct. Regardless of circumstances. One that comes from position. Because this is what God has done. He's gathered us together. He's adopted us into his family. And so now you're no longer just a stranger. You're no longer someone that I just see. You're no longer somebody that I engage with for an hour on Sunday morning. You and I, brothers and sisters, in the family of God, and we are called to love each other as such. Finally, all of you have among yourselves like-mindedness, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart. A tender heart. We're called to be tender-hearted. This is, we are called to be compassionate. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We are called to have compassion one to another. A tender heart one to another. An open heart. A caring heart. To, to be tender-hearted is to be moved to the point where I am ready to do something for you. That's what it means to be tenderhearted. This isn't, oh, bless his heart. This isn't, oh, that's super sad. This isn't, I will pray for you. But I will really never pray for you. This is to be moved by a compassion for one another to a place where we are ready to act on the behalf of another. 
to do something on the behalf of another. This means that we are willing and we are ready to go out of our way to make our lives complicated, to be uncomfortable for the sake of another. That's how we're called to live. One for another. Me for you and you for me. Tender-hearted, compassionate, moving to do something and to act on, to act on the behalf of someone other than ourselves. You see how these go together? There's a like-minded unity that moves us into a sympathy where we share in feelings of each other because we love one another. We're willing to act on behalf of one another. Tender-hearted. And then fifthly, humble-minded. And finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. A humble mind. The way that I best understand humility is an accurate self-understanding. It's an accurate self-understanding. It is a, it's a real and deep self-awareness. That we know who we are. We are aware of our own shortcomings. We're aware of our own sins. We're aware of our own failures. And because of that, I am willing to deal with your shortcomings and your sins and your failures. Because I'm no better than you. And I'm no different than you. Right? That is, that is being humble-minded. Ephesians 4, starting verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called. And how is that? With all humility. With all humility. Not just a little bit of humility, but with every bit of humility. And gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. What does that sound like? That sounds like 1 Peter 3. Colossians 3.12, put on men as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It's a humble-mindedness that says, I am willing to lower myself and to serve you to meet your needs. That's, that's humble-mindedness. This is the towel and the basin. Do you know what I mean when I say the towel and the basin? Keep your finger in 1 Peter chapter 3, and if you would, turn with me, John 13. It's a lengthy passage, so I don't want us to depend only on the screens. Go John 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
And during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now John goes through some length here to make sure that we're aware of some things, right? To make sure that we're aware that Jesus knows exactly who he is. That he has come from the Father and that he is going back to the Father, right? Jesus knows exactly who he is. He is God in the flesh. He is the Savior of the world. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the greater David. He is the one that all of creation has longed for and has waited for. And he is here. And out of every person who's ever lived and ever existed, he alone is worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. He knows this. He knows this. John, he knows it. And yet, what does he do? He humbles himself. And that holds up in juxtaposition to us. Because even though we might think we're something, we are really not much. Not compared to him. He's the sinless son of God. We are sinful who were enemies of God. He is the perfect, righteous one. We can't make it through a day without messing up. And if he is willing to humble himself, then how much more should we be willing to humble ourselves? He knows who he is. John makes sure we know that. Not only that, John makes sure that we know that he knows who they are. Because it's, it's weird to me that John says... Jesus knew that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew Judas was the one who would betray. And what did Jesus do? He washed his feet. If I was Jesus, I would have lined them up. I'd have put Judas at the end. I'd have washed eleven. I'd have looked at him and said, I'm done. Because you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I'm about to die because you betrayed me. I mean, talk about betrayal. There's not a greater betrayal. I mean, it's one thing to betray us. It's another thing to betray the, the Son of Man. So not only does Jesus know who He is, but Jesus knows who they are, and He still willingly humbles Himself and washes their feet. This is humble-mindedness. He came to Simon Peter. St. Peter who wrote this letter that we're studying. And he's, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. 
And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, if I can't have a share with you, if I can't have a partnership with you, if I can't be connected to you unless my feet are washed, then you wash all of me because you have all of me. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who would betray him, and that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. For if you know these things, blessed are you who do them. Why did Jesus stoop to wash their feet? To give for us an example of how we should live one to another. And Peter, Simon Peter, there witnessing this, gets this and writes to the churches to say, be humble-minded. Be humble-minded. This is how we're to live one to another. With a unity of mind, a sympathy, a brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Not a chance. We'll pick up with number six next week. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.